My first demonstration, I get a letter back from the police, and it reads, Dear Mr Thomas, I, Superintendent Terry, do hereby authorise your demonstration, calling for the abolition for the need to get authorisation for demonstration. <laughs> And I thought, we can play. <laughs> so I started to go along to Charing Cross Police Station where they have the special events unit. And I've started to apply for more demonstrations. And I've got to know this police officer called PC Paul McAnally really very well over the past sort of nine months. Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say we were mates, um, but we might play football Christmas Day. <laughs> I go into Charing Cross Police Station with my forms to have the demonstration and see PC Paul McInerney. Right, Mark, let's have a look. What have you got here? You want a demonstration to defend surrealism. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I can have a demonstration about anything I like. Indeed, you can. I just didn't know surrealism was under threat. <laughs> Now, this week, I have a very special guest in the shape of the comedian, activist, satirist, writer, Mark Thomas. Uh, Mark and I got talking straight away. There was very little preamble. Um, so let's pick it up from the beginning. So, uh, yeah, so I was speaking to David Quantic, and he mentioned to me about, he, he singled you out specifically because he was talking about when he was writing for Saturday Zoo. That's um, right, yeah. And he said that you were a big Spike Milligan fan. Oh, I was absolutely kind of, I, I was over, I was just over the moon when it, I found out Spike Milligan was coming on the show. You know what I mean? It was like having a comedy hero come and work on the show. It was just unbelievable. Yeah, well, David said he was a bit abrupt. <laughs> ah, yeah, I mean, he was. But I mean, you know, he was, you know, he was getting on with Spike. And he was, um, he was, he'd agreed to come on and, I'm not quite sure why, because he was, the show was so very, very different from what he does. And also it was, you know, it was just, uh, you felt that he was tired. Mm. Not that he didn't commit himself, not that he didn't, um, you know, want to do the show or anything like that. But you felt that somehow in his bones, he felt a bit tired. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, was it? It would have been the early nineties, wouldn't it? it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I think Spike, from about about I don't know, eighty nine, ninety, certainly throughout the nineties, he did seem tired, weary. Um, yeah, he did. I mean, he was. For me, it was unbelievable that this bloke was coming on the show. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? It was. It felt. I, I was complete fanboy. Um, there was. So I suppose there's really three components to it. One is the fact that he came on the show, which I was absolutely thrilled about. Um, and I remember other people who in, in the room, uh, David was not one of them, but who were less thrilled, who who were kind of like more, slightly more, they felt that he wasn't really A-list, I suppose. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was kind of like, and for me, it was, this was heresy. Mm. But they were kind of like, we had the muscles from Brussels. We have Naomi Campbell on the shows, you know, people like that. Um, right. Back with an attitude, it's Jonathan Ross and Saturday Zoo. Good evening, welcome to the show on Channel 4, a live show, Saturday Zoo. Name one word, why? Co-hosted by Naomi Campbell with music from Delamitri and featuring Roland Ribron as the male model. Saturday Zoo with Jonathan Ross, tomorrow at 10 on 4. So there's a question of why have we got Spike Milligan? It's like, well, he's a comedy god. Um, there was some kind of doubt over it. Um, I mean, I, my dad was absolutely delighted. Mm. My dad was absolutely thrilled. My dad was a massive um, Spike fan. And um, 
had every, every book that Spike Milligan had written. And he, he said, I remember my dad said to me, son, will you go and get, would you, would you get books signed? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sure that'll be a problem. I'll, I'll take it and see if you will. So I said, what, what do you want me to take? He said, I've got them ready. There's a bloody great bag of books. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, he wanted every single book signed. <laughs> like, Dad, you can't ask for it. He goes, no, I want them all done. I was like, oh, Dad. He's going, well, there's no point in getting just one of them done. I want all of them. So it's just like, oh, God's sake. So I've got this bloody great bag of books, which I've got into work. And, you know, on these things, they have, um, they have production assistants. Hmm. Who, who, or celebrity um, liaison people—they're called—and um, their job is basically to be nice to the guests, look after them, and make sure they get everything they need. Um, and you know, and, and fair play—that's you know—that if if you're coming to film at LWT Studios, and it's a big place, and it's you don't know anyone there, then it's nice to have someone whose job it is to look after you, to make sure that you get, you know, simple things like you get taken down to makeup, you get taken over to, you know, get some grub or you get some things that you sure. want. Do you know what I mean? Just yeah, to make yeah, your yeah. This, this lovely woman was, was Spike's liaison and, and she was really charming. And um, I mentioned early on that, and that I'd, my dad had, got some books that he once signed. <laughs> and she said, I'll have a word with him. Anyway, word got down to the writer's room that Spike would grant me audience <laughs> and that I should run up now and I should go up there with, with my book. Yeah. And it was singular. And I didn't hear the singular. And I ran up with this bag of, well, I didn't really run. I sort of staggered. I wish I'd had one of those. But you know those um, those wheelie library books that you see in prison films? Yes, yes. I'd, yeah. I wish I'd had one of those. And um, <laughs> I, I put all these books up there. And, like, some of them are hardbacks. So <laughs> I went up there. And I said, oh, hello. And she said, this is Mark Thomas. And I said, oh, hello, Spike, my my." I'm a massive fan. I'm really delighted you're on the show. And I said, uh, and my my dad, uh, I wondered if he, he, my dad's a massive fan. He wondered if he, you would sign his books. It'd be a real, real honor if you did that. And he said, okay. And then I produced his bag of books and he just turned. <laughs> he just went, oh, he said, all of them? I said, yes. He said, God, oh, all of them? I said, yes, if that's all right, if you wouldn't mind. And so he, he took the first one. And you know how painstaking his signature is? Yeah. Mm. Mm. It's quite, it is quite, I mean, he, you can read every single letter. If I look at my signature, right, it looks like a, it looks like a small mammal's cardiogram during heart attack. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. But if I look at Spike Milligan's, it's very precise. It's lovely. There's almost a little bit. It's, it's not quite calligraphy. It's almost like, but he puts these curlicules on it. Do you he know does. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like a little drawing, isn't it? Almost. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Actually, that's a really brilliant way of mm. describing it. It is like a little drawing. So suddenly he has to do all these little drawings. And um, he just sat there quietly. And then he just went, this is like being mugged. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was no, there was no sort of joviality. There was no mucking around. There was no kind of, oh, you're writing on the show, or there's no kind of common bond. Not, nor should there be, really. Mm. Um, you know, it's not... <laughs> just because you work in vaguely the same industry doesn't mean that you're going to be mates. Um, was, did, was he aware of, of your work? He was aware. He became aware some years later. Mm. I mean, this was Saturday Zoo when I was just doing stand-up, mm. and... Um, he was so funny. I remember him just sitting there going, would you, would you, would you post them off to me? 
he started he started quizzing me would you post them all to me if you wanted with your father would he say post all these books to spike minigam and i said no i don't i don't think so no this is mugging this is mugging so it wasn't it wasn't a very pleasant meeting but you know it's just really good to be in the same room as 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 someone you really admire sometimes yeah even if it wasn't a great meeting it was you know and i i became friendly with his daughter jane in later years oh yeah who, <laughs> who met me while I was protesting outside Tesco's. <laughs> and I'm not sure what that says about either of us, really. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, well, listen, her old man wasn't averse to a bit of protest, was he? No, 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 he was not. I mean, he was great at that. I mean, he was really... I remember those pictures of him smashing the... Um, is it a, a lobster, the place where they've got lobsters? And he's got a hammer and he's breaking the that. window to get in. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> and it, it's, it's, you just sort of like, oh, okay, that's, that's pretty much direct action, isn't it? Now, as we come to the end of the most important week in the Christian calendar, we pause for a moment of spiritual reflection with a special Easter message from a man you might recognise, the Reverend something or other. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In the beginning, there was bugger all. <laughs> and God said, let there be light. But owing to a power failure at Box Road, the lights didn't come on until Thursday. And the Lord said, let there be candles. <laughs> and God said, God said, let there be land. And there was land. And it went on the market through the Bradford and Bingley <laughs> at 20,000 pounds a square foot. Oh, yay. I just want to talk about your dad, if that's mm. all right, for a moment, because because um, I've not even, I mean, normally what I would do on these things is, is formally introduce my guests, which we haven't, we've just started yakking, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, but that's all right, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. No, that's great. Um, I just want to very quickly just talk about my history with you in the sense of, of your work, I should say, because my mate, my mate Gordon back in the late nineties put me onto some of your stuff. And I, there's, there's two things that you've been responsible for which I really, really love. And one thing's very specifically uh, focused on, on your dad. And you've described your dad, because your dad was a, a builder, wasn't he? And a lay preacher. Yeah. Um, and you, you said, you've described him as the rudest man in, in Britain. He was kind of full of biblical ire. He was quite a, um, a, a very robust, very opinionated man, I, I gather, but who also loved opera. Yeah. Uh, and I love the show you did, Bravo Figaro, about your dad's yeah. love of opera. The thing about my dad was um, he he was he was an autodidact. So he literally, when he left school, he left with no qualifications. And I was talking to my mum recently, and um, we were talking about my we talked about my dad. She went, "Oh, he was quite a reader once he got going, because she actually taught my dad to read and write properly, um, uh, which is quite a thing." My mum was a midwife. You know, for a man who who left school being able to read and write properly, to not only access the art form of opera, but have a profound and deep love of it and a knowledge and understanding of it. Mm. Um, and he, I mean, he kind of like he. I mean, he was very funny because on things that tickled him, he was really curious. Do you know? He had a naturally curious mind. Yeah. Um, some you, you know, some people you meet and they just want to find out things. They want to. Yes. Uh, uh, my my dad was a carpenter by trade. He did his apprenticeship in carpentry and joinery. Um, he discovered this love of opera. I mean, he, he was just a. He's an incredible bloke in many ways. I mean, he he. I always have this thing. People always sort of say, 
all, people don't always say that's all, that's the way you build up a gag. This is just true. <laughs> um, sometimes people go, you know, you might have started out working class, but you became middle class. And to which my response is, our family never, ever, ever became middle class. We became nouveau riche. You get much more money, you get much better parties, and the middle class are intimidated of us and don't come round, which is a win all round. <laughs> Do you Absolutely. know what I mean? Absolutely. By the yeah. way, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but my grandfather, my mum's dad, was a carpenter by trade. Okay. okay. And he was a irascible old sod and never never really got on with him. He, he, he didn't like kids. But I... Um, I, I remember being about five or six years old and wanting to, I don't know what it was. I must've wanted to kind of, I wouldn't have used these words in my head, but wanted to bond with him, you know? Mm. And he lived about, I don't know, 20 minutes walk from where I lived. So I remember walking, it was a nice summer's, you know, summer's day, sun was out. I remember walking to his house, knocking on the door and he opened the door and I said, granddad, could you, I would like to learn to be a carpenter. Could you teach me how to be a carpenter? Because that, you know, I saw that as being my way to kind of win his affection. And I'll never forget it. He looked at me and he went, bugger off and <laughs> slammed the door in the face. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I mean, cut from the same cloth. <laughs> um, y- you said you, you know, your dad gave you these books for Spike to yeah. sign because he was thrilled that you were, you know, that you're. Oh, my dad working. was a massive fan of Spike Minigan and the Goons and Peter Sellers. Do you mm. know what I mean? Like, like, I mean, the person you should talk to is Mark Mark Steele, who has got a magnificent um, Spike Minigan story, and I'm not going to spoil it for you. Well, put put a word in for me, will you? <laughs> I will happily put a word in for you, but Mark Steele, much to my annoyance was an extra in one of the Q series. He was a policeman. Oh. He went to work on stage and go, move this sketch along, please. Oh, right. I mean, I love Spike to the extent, and I, reg- and I have the regard for his work to the extent that actually the theme music from the Q series is my funeral music. You're the second person to say that to me, actually. Someone else has really? said that. Really? Yeah. Who's the other person? Um, a guy called um, Paul Abbott. Probably don't know him, but he's, he, he's got a Beatles podcast. Um, okay. But he said um, he absolutely adores that. And uh, that, that's oh, going to be brilliant. But it's, yeah. it's got, uh, for me, it's got absolutely the right sentiment for a funeral, which is complete, complete slightly out of tune. Well, mm. out of tune. Let's be, let's be honest. It's out of tune. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, slightly off kilter with raspberries in it. Mm. <laughs> and, and Milligan say ding 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 yeah that was just uh, that's the music I'm having the coffin brought into excellent let's hope it's not too soon well, let's hope it's not too soon, but you know, it's kind of like all the dignity you can muster. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll talk specifically about the goons in a, in, a, in a bit, but just very briefly, your other comedy heroes, I guess, because I know you wrote for Dave Allen and it, he, he was another one that your dad loved, wasn't he? He was. I mean, I wrote very badly for Dave Allen. <laughs> right. you know, I was lucky to have been paid. Um, I, I just wanted to be in the same room as him. I thought yeah. he was magnificent. Um, my dad loved him. My my dad's family are this really, really weird family. And his mum was this just twisted, twisted bigot. And um, she she believed that, that somehow Catholics were, were evil. Do you know, she was mm. her religious faith led her to believe that Catholics were evil, and that you could watch Dave Allen because he attacked the Catholics, <laughs> and, and it didn't occur to her that she would be in the firing line um, uh, amongst it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. It didn't occur to her that she was being targeted as well in the ridicule. Um, but uh, it, 
So my, my dad, Dave Allen, was, represented something that was really unique in the house. We had sort of three things, really, which was, um, well, I think in, in many ways, my dad was sort of classic sort of child of the, the 50s, which is he loved Hancock. He loved the goons. Um, and then Steptoe and Son and Dave Allen. Those were the, those were, and, and, and it had real currency in our house. Mm. And the reason it had currency was because my dad was a real patriarch. He was a real violent, um, he, he was very violent. He was, he was very, um, you know, he ruled with a rod of iron. There was various rules which you mustn't transgress, but you didn't fully know what they were. Um, you had to creep around, um, you know, my mum was always the gatekeeper for emotions and would would negotiate for us if we would want something outrageous like a football. Um, <laughs> right. You know, and the one time that there was a, 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 any kind of like semblance of being able to relax and let all the normal guards down, in fact, not only let the guards down, but kind of celebrate the transgression was um, was watching comedy. And mm -hmm. Steptoe Son and Dave Allen in particular. I got talking to a fellow in the bar one night. I said to him, I said, why do you drink? He said, I'm... I'm... <laughs> <laughs> why, do you, why do you have to go and ask me questions like that? <laughs> why do you have to go and bring up all the, the sad memories? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, why do you drink? He said, well... I, I've been married to two beautiful ladies, and, and they both died. And <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I drink. I said, you mean you've lost two wives? <laughs> I said, how did the first one die? She said, she died of mushroom poisoning. <laughs> And I said, the second one? Is it a broken neck? <laughs> I said, a broken neck? I said, how did she get a broken neck? He said, she wouldn't eat her mushrooms. <laughs> it was what my, I, I talk about this in the show about my dad because he would always, when he came in from the building site, we all had to wait until he got in. Um, I washed his hands with Swarfiga. There was this very big ritual. Swarfiga was a big sort of industrial cleanser, which is yeah. this gelatinous soap in a rectangular tin, an oblong, a sort of oblong, really. And um, he would he would he would wash his hands and then come and sit down at the table and say grace, and then we would eat. And then my dad would be offered first choice of second helpings. And then um, we had to ask if we wanted to leave the table. And then two of us were picked. It was normally me because I was the eldest. Um, my sister might be asked to do some, you know, some light kind of thing of moving something or other. But I had to help unload the van. I had to help cut the wood. And mm. the cutting of the wood put in the family firewood box happened every bloody night. And my dad would stand there at a circular saw, just getting all this stuff that he'd picked up from the site. Because he was in, he was inveterate kind of hoarder and collector. He was um, he was incredibly well. He was green before green. You know, he recycled everything, okay, everything you could. Yeah. Um, once every six months, we'd go down to scrap metal merchants, right? To 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 kind of like everything, every copper wire, every copper nail was picked up and stripped and put in a bag and taken in. And once every six months, we'd go down. I later learned the six monthly timings were roughly around about the time of the tax bill. My dad would go down to the scrap metal. And look, I, I love those days because I would sit with them um, a big sort of ladle melting the bra melting the, um, the lead off the brass fittings on taps. You know, without any mask, without any goggles. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. just kind of like, that's what you did. And we were very much of that world of of sort of step to and stunt. you know what I mean? But your your dad would look askance at anyone in a high-vis jacket or wearing eye protectors. Oh, it would be, do you know, there would be very question marks about their sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not blind from a piece of of, of you know, of a bit of you know, swarf coming out of a lathe, then what kind of a man are you? Um, it's very, I still have a scar on the top of my nose from where I was 
helping i was working with him and i was walking up a ladder and I was, we we're working on a roof and um it was a church roof and for some reason a, a slate became unfixed and as i emerged at the top of the ladder a slate just shot off and it caught it connected at the top of my nose <sighs> right um and and it you it's very funny it's it's still there it's still visible i can see it in the reflection of the screen and um it used to be black from all the or, or sort of gray from all the the the, the dust from slates and he was my dad so my dad absolutely loved um you know anything to do with people who you know anything that was working class anything that was about um you know the scabrous side of things the irreverent the kind of but and and watching it we these were the times when we could watch it and, and become transgressors if you like during mm. comedy mm. so my dad would come in we'd, we'd cut everything up we'd put all the scrap away we'd do that and then he would watch telly but what he used to do is he used to have his is i talked about this in the show so he used to have his bath in the morning so he'd go to bed dirty yeah and so what he'd do, because he's got his work trousers on and he had a favourite leather armchair, what he'd do is he'd come into the front room and unbuckle his belt and drop his trousers <laughs> and sit in his long johns um, with his trousers round his ankles, <laughs> laughing at Steptoe and Son for being common. And it, and it was very, it's, it was that kind of lovely, um, it was those moments when you could just, relax you could be yourself you could enjoy that rule breaking and so those shows were very much we always used to listen to um to radio on uh, on sunday lunchtime for example we'd always listen to that comedy bit mm. on, on the radio yeah. on sunday lunchtime um the clitheroe kid and people you know stuff like that oh yeah um, and and I, my dad was of that generation where um he loved he loved spike milligan's books he really, and I did too. I think he's one of the few authors I've read where I remember being on trains and just laughing publicly uncontrollably. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's I, I, that there's some, there's a mark of honor and distinction in that, in, in that feat. Um, he had, he, he really, really adored his books and loved, um, the goons, but the people who my dad worked with were people who'd, sort of like plasterers who'd been in the war. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We'd get a decorator who'd be... My Uncle David, um, who was D-Day, you know, on the on the boats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know, so all those people. And they loved the goons. They loved mm. them so much. It was unbelievable. And um, there's a guy I used to work with called Nobby Clark, because everyone whose who surname was Clark, Clark was called Nobby Clark. yeah, yeah. yeah. But regardless, <laughs> I don't actually know what his first name actually was. It's just everyone was called Nobby Clark, if you were a Clark. And um, and every, he was one of these blokes. He'd be working away, he'd be decorating, and he'd stop and he'd bend over and pick up a box of matches to light a flat fag. And he'd go, he's falling into water. <laughs> <laughs> and so these little goon catchphrases would just fly out. <laughs> Do you know, yeah. during the course of a working day, which I found hysterical and nonsensical. And it was only when I started listening to them that I thought, bloody hell, that's great. Yeah, because you would have because you were born in the in the sixties, so so you wouldn't have heard them first time round. You wouldn't have heard them as they went out. No, no. The way that I heard them was um, was I, I won a scholarship to a boarding school, and I, when I went there, it was mainly it was a weird sort of charity school. So you, your parents had to earn under a certain amount of money for you to be eligible, um, and I. Um, and my dad was very sort of like, my boy's going to go and get an education, you know, that kind of thing. And we were just absolutely damaged and, and, and homesick. And my mate's uncle, there's, there was a lovely thing, I don't know if you had it, but we, if, if anyone in the street who was a friend of the family was an uncle or an aunt. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So my mate's uncle, who just lived next door to the family home, uh, Uncle Mick, was a massive fan of Hancock and a massive fan of the goons. Mm -hmm. And he used to tape these shows to us and post them to us. 
And I think I, I think it was my, I had a tape recorder, one of these early cassette recorders, which you'd put the cassette in, and they're great big chunky buttons. Do you know, what I mean? like you were doing some industrial task. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you had to press two of them down to record. Um, and I had a tiny little mic. In fact, the first song that I ever became obsessed with was Michelle, My Girl by the Beatles, which I sat and recorded with a tiny mic off the radio. Right, yeah. Um, and there was a real, what was fascinating was we were just, all of us kids were obsessed with the goons and with Hancock. And we just used to sit around um, before, you know, before, while we were in the dormitories, just, you know, before the prospect of going to bed and nighttime and just, yeah, feel awful and horrible. Yeah, did you did did you did did it make you feel slightly subversive? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. We felt we would we were there was a gang of us that completely loved it. And um, didn't you? It um, made, it made us, sorry, go on. I was going to say, didn't you used to? Um, yeah, as part of your misspent youth, you think misspent youth is having a fag around the back of the bike sheds. Whereas, didn't you used to sneak into the local <laughs> arts centre to watch? Um, London yeah. contemporary dance troops. Yeah, that's completely true. <laughs> <laughs> that was that's my upbringing in a, in a, in a in a nutshell. <laughs> Bunking in to see London contemporary dance. <laughs> Saturday morning cinema. No thanks. I want an exploration of Greek themes as as espoused by physical movement. <laughs> <laughs> Ballet Rombert. Yeah, I love Bally Rombert, although yeah. I didn't like it as much as London Contemporary Dance, so I regard it as the more robust, though right. perhaps less, less, art, less artistry. Um, <laughs> I mean, they, they, they're absolutely, they did a piece called Troy Games, did London Contemporary Dance, which is one of the most fantastic things I've seen. Um, but yeah, I did, I did used to, bunk, I mean, we bunked in everywhere, you know, yeah, you know, there's a whole culture of you had to bunk in, you had to bunk the trains, you had to bunk the buses. Do you know what I mean? It was just what you did. But I think one of the things about the, the Goon Show was because what you're listening... When somebody asked me to describe the Goon Show, I basically said, war. War is a great creator of, of art by accident. Not necessarily during war, though there are some fine examples, um, but in the immediate aftermath. Mm the explosion of creativity is yeah. quite unique. And after the First World War, Switzerland gave us Dadaism. Yeah. And after the Second World War, Britain got the goons. <laughs> yeah. And that seems to me absolutely perfect. Do you know what I mean? That, that, that What you're listening to is this weird piece of subversion and surrealism well, you don't quite know the characters because I didn't. I didn't quite know. didn't quite understand, you know, all the the the, the hierarchies mm. within it. But I loved it. We loved it. We loved the voices. We loved the silliness. We loved the play. That's what I think differentiates the goons from all other radio comedy is the sense of play and the interaction between the players live within the script yeah but it's, yeah because you're, you've got blue bottle who's always reading stage directions you know he knows he's in a it's it's peter sellers playing a character who is playing a character in a in a yeah. play essentially Meanwhile, in a field in kent a boy scout stands guard over the safe there. <laughs> Silly boy, silly boy, I'm only the announcer. Then what are you doing in a field in Kent? <laughs> I'm not really in a field in Kent. It just so it happens, happens that I was merely announcing in the... Shut up! Shut Announcing in the studio the next... Will you shut up? Shut Which happens to be a field... Will you... Oh, I'm fed up with this wiry idiot. Oh, do not be angry at Bundle. I was only doing my best type acting because Gladys Bowles is listening tonight. 
May I ask who is Gladys Bowles? She's... <laughs> She's my mistress at school. <laughs> Hello, Miss Bowles. This is me talking on the electric wireless. <laughs> Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Here, tie a knot in this string and swallow it. Did, uh, did you? Because very often when I've had guests on here, they have um, got hold of the script books, and you know when they were at school, they've, they've with friends, they've done little impromptu goon show performances. Mate, did, did you I do didn't that? just do an impromptu goon show. I put I directed the Phantom Batter Slinger of Bexley Hill on Sea for a, a, an end of term uh, performance. Oh, let, let, hang on. Let me unpick that. That's you've conflated two episodes there. Have <laughs> the, I sorry? sorry the, 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 right, the, the, there was the the dreaded batter pudding her of Bexel on Sea, yes, and the uh, Phantom Head Shaver of Brighton. No, no, no. No, it's the it's the dreaded batter pudding. Throw. Right. Yeah. 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 So you sorry, directed I was, that. I, I was only twelve. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to sorry to chide you there. <laughs> no, no, mate, you're absolutely fine to do it. It's 46 years ago. I'm entitled to some memory loss and you're entitled to chide. <laughs> <laughs> but we did we did it and it was it was um we all adored it. Mm. We, we didn't know what we were doing really. We were only 12. Were you Milligan? Were you Sellers or did you just do random voices? I uh, we uh, no, I was Milligan. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because Mill I mean Sellers was uh, Harry Seacombe, I never really got... And Michael Benteen, actually, who, mm. who I liked. I, he, he's kind of like never really... In, in, you know, the Goons is always Milligan and Sellers, and then Harry Seacombe, and then maybe Michael Benteen. But Benteen was just... He was another one who was just not right. I met him and got on very well with him and had tea with him during the Edinburgh Festival one year. Oh, right. Okay. And he was... He was talking about, um, I mean, it's quite clear. Um, and he said, you've got a great career ahead of you. I'm a psychic, you know. Right. <laughs> and it was, um, you just sort of go, well, all right, thanks, mate. But, it, I mean, this is the man who did Michael Benteen's Potty Time, mm. you know, which was, as a kid, growing up, watching, do you remember the little, the, those sequences of sand trap drama? Yes, with the with the feet in the sand, you mean? Yeah, and yeah. all these little, you know, these yeah. little noises of the characters. Mm. Um, I thought they were remarkable. I used to love those. Yeah, and and I think Benteen was very much, you know, he was. Uh, I don't. I mean, I've actually read his books on spiritualism um, because they were written by him. With him, with him, with the spiritualism side to him, I I kind of compare it a bit to Arthur Conan Doyle, who got into spiritualism quite late in his life in a big way. And I think from memory, he'd had, he'd, he'd experienced quite a bit of loss in his life. And Benteen had lost, I think, at least two of his children in his lifetime, one of them in, in quite um, tragic circumstances. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that it, it, I mean, possibly, if you look at the goons, the least damaged was the most boring, which was Harry Seacombe. You see, I know what you're saying. And I, when I was a kid listening to the goons, because I got into the goons when I was 14 by accident, and I, and I became obsessed for about I'd like a three or four year period where I was just obsessed, you know. Um, and Harry Seacombe, yeah, he was the least interesting one. But But now I'm older, now I'm, you know, in the late 40s and I'm, listening to them again and getting myself sort of immersing myself in the world of the goons again. You know, part of this podcast is, 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 is for that reason. Um, I've got a lot of admiration for his, for his skill, for his performance in that show. Oh, oh, that's, no, look, we're talking about the goons. So they're genius. They are, that's a given. We're starting from the benchmark that what they produced was absolutely remarkable and unique. Um, so if you're part of it, then you know you're part of the genius. Yeah. Um, Seacombe, I, I I look at him, you know, as 
there's a weird thing of of Seekham and, and how he he's almost like a foil. Do you know? He's almost like the official foil within the gang. Um, he's he's always there. He's always on time. He's always right. He's always is looks to be more disciplined than everyone else. Oh yeah, yes. He looks to be in control of the performance, allowing the others to just free wheel. I, I think he's the Bill Wyman of the goons. <laughs> right. That's not to say he went for younger no. women, but he, he 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 was kind of like the he was the glue, part of the glue. Um, the Charlie Watts, if you want, you know, between Mick and Keith, these dueling personalities. I what I find amazing is when you Sellers is obviously having an absolute field day. Mm -hmm. Sellers seems to be just having fun. Do you know when you when you see him and when you hear him, he just seems to be having fun. And Milligan's got this this mad, tortured wonderfulness about him. Um, and there's there's Harry Seacombe holding it together. I mean, I'm not saying that they didn't have fun. They all appear to be having fun. And that's, that's one of the things that really, you know, sort of like draws it apart from other stuff. One of the most entertaining things to hear in a goon show is when they actually, when you can hear the performers actually laughing genuinely and corpsing. Yeah. There's an episode called um, The Case of the Missing CD Plates. And there's a, there's like a, 30 second sequence where Sellers is just giggling uncontrollably and you have this sort of mental image of him sort of you know um he's almost on the floor I love that idea of just of of him <laughs> of him just being out of control I love that there's nothing like it as well if you've ever um your love Mark Steele story by the way um okay it if you've ever um had one of those beautiful fits where you just absolutely can't stop laughing. You know those moments where it's yes. just impossible. Yes. I, I, I once was filming in Kerala um, for this project we were working on. Yeah. And we we're in the middle of a national park in Kerala in a tiny village. And there were kind of like maybe 20 huts spaced out a tea shop, a chai shop, um, a mosque. Mm. And there was something else, uh, you know, something else other than a dwelling. I forgot what it was. Um, and we were taken in there by the guy who was our translator and fixer. And um, we, we'd gone to film, actually, we'd gone to film um, some good views and try and get, um, and we did actually see the giant squirrel, which is really impressive. Okay. Um, we were in this tea shop and they served up chai and I was really starving. I said, and they had a little glass cabinet like you might find at a railway station from a 1950s film. Yeah. And it had cakes in it and it had, and it had like this rock cake with, and, and it was the driest rock cake I'd ever eaten. So I'd start to eat this thing and it was, um, and we're sitting there and there's a, a group of villagers who'd sort of like gathered around. They were very charming and lovely. Do you know what I mean? And, and our translator and fixer was chatting away. And then the imam started to call the faithful to prayer from the local mosque. And um, it, was, it was this tannoy system that went through this tiny village. And uh, he, in the midway through the, the call for prayer, he belches. Right. And we just started to giggle. We just started to giggle uncontrollably. <laughs> Absolutely. I've got a mouthful of rock cake and giggle uncontrollably. So it's just, you can't stop. And I just, I was trying to catch my breath. And my mate Martin, who was with me, who was a cameraman, just goes, don't laugh, they'll kill you. And that was the worst thing to say <laughs> because I just, just set me off. It just set me off. And so I was just giggling. I literally was shaking while trying to get some of this chai down to sort of make some moisture in my mouth. Yeah, yeah. And 
And this bloke arrived and poured more tea in and it was shaking out of the cup. <laughs> and those moments are just, I, I love those moments. I love yeah. those moments because it's all about uncontrollable release, uncontrollable joy. Yeah. Can the, I just say, you said Spike know of my stuff. I, 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 from conversations with Jane, he knew of the comedy products shows that I did. Right. Okay. And he enjoyed them. I feel very kind of hurrah about. His attitude was he's the only one that goes for these bastards. It was that generation of who had been damaged in the war mm. and actually had an amazing lack. If you read his books, you know what this like. It's incredible lack of respect for authority. Yeah. Because that's what you like to do because you, you know, you're great at undermining pomposity. You're very tenacious. You never, you never give up once you decide upon a course of action. You're never going to be swayed from that. I was just writing down some some notes, obviously, for this, and I wrote down the word devilment um, <laughs> because I think that that you embody that as well to a certain degree in the best way. You, yeah, I mean, you want to. Devilment is about. It, there's a sense of poking authority and prodding away at it, and just for mm. the sake. Do you know what I mean? And there, there's something, there's reward to be having just, you know, creating havoc with authority. That's, yeah. You know, it's something to be done in its own right. I, I love the, the Nicholas Soames story. <laughs> the, the, coffee, the coffee table. <laughs> you are talking about the, um, it was the conditionally exempt works of art list, whereby the, if you inherited works of art, you could avoid paying inheritance tax if you put it on this scheme, which allowed some visitation from the public. But the way the scheme was run, you weren't allowed to know what was on the list. You weren't allowed to, uh, to know who owned it, where it was, how you could see it, or how you could contact them. So it was essentially not a list. It was a list of avoidance. And um, we found out that Nicholas Soames had a three-tier mahogany buffet with partially readed slender baluster upright supports. <laughs> which we became instant fans of and organized hundreds of people to go and see it. Um, and it was, it was great fun. He, he, um, he was furious because he, we phoned up and said, Oh, look, I've got permission to see your three tier Margaret Buffet. Can I um, bring some friends? Went, no, they should apply individually. And so that was it. It was just like a green light. Oh, just hundreds of people applied individually um, to see his, you know, creating this massive bureaucratic paperwork, you know, sort of workload um, to organize. And, and so what he did in the end was he put the three tier mahogany buffet, partially really slender balance upright supports in Christie's and they organized it. And, um, and then suddenly he, and we turned up as works of art to see it. So, I'm, you know, somebody turned up as Rembrandt. Somebody turned up as um, my mate, Paul, turned up as Robert Mapplethorpe in a pair of chaps with a peaked leather cap. Oh, um, yeah. And, it, it, you know, to see these things. And it, we had a great laugh. We had a really great old time doing it. And then, and actually the end result was we did quite a lot of work on this area and changed the law. And I'm quoted in Hansard in the House of Parliament as being instrumental in changing the law on it. What happened was that suddenly Soames wouldn't let people in to see his three-tier mahogany buffet. And they wrote to me and I, I immediately uh, got in contact with the Inland Revenue saying, I want to report a break of the law. You know, yeah. break of the law. And he said, no. He said, well, someone might not be showing it because uh, it had been stolen. I said, oh, I've not heard of that. He goes, neither have I. He said, someone might be showing it, not be showing it because it had been damaged. I said, I've not heard of it. He said, neither have I. He said, the third reason they might not be showing it is because they paid the tax. I said, is that what happened? He said, I can't possibly reveal someone's personal tax information. Very clear, right? Anyway, several years later, I'm visiting an MP in Portcullis House talking about a landmine scheme. And there's a big atrium with loads and loads of coffee shops around it where all these MPs and the researchers and journalists and sitting around. Nicholas Soames was sitting there. I suddenly see Soames. I couldn't resist it. I just ran up to him sat down opposite him and just went, Nicholas, and really rude, interrupting his conversation. I said, Nicholas, I said, do you remember me? Mark Thomas Channel for you. I said, you've got your three-tier mahogany parsley really bad. Did you pay tax? He said, yes. And that was it. it was like, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the punchline happened years later. Yeah. Whenever I think of Nicholas Soames and furniture, I think of that, but I also think of that quote, that famous quote from his um, mistress 
about um, being with Nicholas Soames was like having a wardrobe fall on top of you with the key still in the lock. I know. It's a beautiful, you know, it's kind of like that. I mean, I think it, it basically of all the things that have publicly undermined the authority of Nicholas Soames, I suspect that one probably had more clout. Yeah. <laughs> you met David Amos as well, didn't you? I did. I did. David Amos, who was the recently mm. murdered MP mm. um, in Southend. Um, and he was, um, we basically asked, we, we put out a call to all these Tory MPs in relatively marginal constituencies, which his was at the time. Uh, and we said, we're doing a youth programme. Would you come and talk to us about youth issues? And they, he just, all these Tory MPs, it was near an election, so they were desperate to get on. And yeah. all these Tory MPs came charging over. And um, we, we, had, we, we had more Tory MPs than we had time slots in the end. And we had to, to say no to some of them. Uh, but I dressed as a large bear and interviewed them. And David Amos, I'd go, do you like, do you like Winnie the Pooh? And he said, yes, I do. It's lovely. I love Winnie the Pooh. I said, do you like, um, do you like uh, 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 honey? Oh, yes, I love honey. I love it's particularly English honey. Yeah. I said, um, you're pro-choice and pro-hanging. Uh, sorry, I said, you're, you're uh, pro-abortion and pro-hanging. And he said, yes. I said, what, what age do you think we should be able to kill them then? And he just sat there and there was this silence. And then he just went, 18? <laughs> he was very upset. And he, he wrote to, um, he got in contact with the head of Channel 4 and Michael Grade, who was the head of Channel 4, gave him his word that Channel 4 would never broadcast it again. Uh, right. okay. Which, of course, we are now... We're, we're now, between you and me and your listeners, we are now devising um, a, a cinema show, which is me introducing the clips of our favourite moment, of which David Amos features. Uh, it has to just for, you know, devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the head of Channel 4 said, this will never be shown again. Well, it's going to be shown again. Absolutely. Hey, here we are. Welcome to the Bear Necessities. So, Seb, when we, well, I used to like you running. And you know, Thank you. my mum, my bear mum, yeah. she used to say, that Seb Coe, he's got a lovely bottom. I'll, say, I'll, Seb I'll, Coe, I'll take your word for that. Lovely... Would you show us your bottom? Certainly not. Would you show us your bottom? Certainly not. You can keep your trousers on. I'm very comfortable sitting here. The thing is, because you, you won't have heard any of these, but the way that I don't really have any structure to these podcasts, I just kind of, we just start chatting, really, and just see how the conversation, you know, meanders. Uh, Around the goon shows. Yeah, but we, very often... A lovely idea, because Spike and that, that the gang were just so... I mean, they were an institution. They became an institution that formed part of not everyone's life, but certainly a lot of people's lives. Yes. You, know, you remember um, Life is Sweet, that Mike Lee film with... Yes, I do. George, mm. uh, with um, Jim Broadbent, mm. in which he is obsessed with the, with the goons. Mm. And he keeps doing, he falling in the water, you know, and Alison Steadman just laughing hysterically. Yeah. And it is such a beautiful little portrait. My, th this bloke I used to work with, Nobby Clark, I remember sitting there just going, bloody hell, it's like Nobby Clark and his missus. Because <laughs> they used to, they used to, uh, the flat they used to live in, it was one of those ones where the kitchen was, it was one of those old sort of working class houses where the kitchen and, and the parlour um, were right at the end and then you had your little dining room and it was all but everything happened in those two rooms yeah they were connected and open do you know what I mean they, they'd actually knocked down part of the wall um, and it was this tiny little world with a with this kind of uh, acrylic armchairs and Doily armrests, you know the doily armrests. Yeah, 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 yeah. And blazing electric bar fires and cups of tea mm. and dogs and goon quotes mm. and just catchphrases. And it was for me, there was something brilliant about that. There was something wildly brilliant about it. 
about this family that was uh, there was a sense of contentment about who they were my dad's friend used to come and visit often with his wife and his wife always wore a hat i never saw her without a hat even in the house she'd, she'd wear a hat and i don't even know what her name was because he wouldn't her husband my dad's friend he wouldn't refer to her by her name he would just call her madam he would address her as madam so you know they'd be visiting and um my dad would say do you, know, do you want a cup of tea and his, his friend ken would turn to his wife and say madam do you want a cup of tea <laughs> and she would uh, she would nod primly or whatever but um but i always remember ken um would always go on about the goon show before i you know before i was aware of of it really and he would always quote lines from the goon show uh and the line or the thing that he said about the, the goon show that always sticks in my head to this day is he talked about lurgy uh and he said you know what Lur and I remember him saying to me do you know what lurgy is boy and i'm like no it's uh, it means ingrowing assholes <laughs> right <laughs> so I thought, you know, when I, when I finally did actually hear that show, Lurgy Strikes Britain, the goon show, I had it in my head that that's what Lurgy was. It was an ingrowing bum, basically. <laughs> it's a very funny life. I have to tell you, I saw Spike live. Mm. Pretty sure it was one of the first performances I saw. Okay. We used to go to the, used to go to the circus, which was on Clapton Common. There used to be a big parade that would come through the common and we'd go up there to the, to the common. We'd always go there every year. Mm. Um, we'd occasionally go to the cinema, but there was a school trip. And there was a school trip to see Treasure Island performing at the Mermaid Theatre. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. okay. And Spike played Ben Gunn. Mm. That's right. Like the stranded... Um, man on the island who's obsessed with cheese. And I have never erased that memory of him saying cheese in that way. <laughs> it was, if you can imagine Ben Gunn's obsession with cheese and then Spike Milligan's manic performance. Yeah, yeah. Just like, it was the funniest thing. can get along without a single slice of cake. Who needs cake for heaven's sake? Ah, but there's a point I have to make. A cheeseless life is hard to take. I said cheese. I could smell it on the breeze. If I had one wish, I'd love to wrap a molar round a piece of cork and solar cheese. You must have been quite young then because, yeah, because he, he I was at primary school, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, yeah, but it was just absolutely remarkable. My mum, my mum said, Oh, you're lucky you're going to see Spike Milligan, yeah, and it, and it was, I, I suppose, he sort of like put the seed that he was someone special in, and then you see him and you just go, Wow. And if it's ever you don't go well, you just go, you just go around impersonating him. At that age, that's what you do. Were you keen on the Q series? Yeah, I love the Q series. Mm -hmm. I always thought snipers in your skirting board was, was, was one that <laughs> still tickles me. And the, the infestation of Liberaches was just absolutely magic. Yeah, I mean, the funniest thing I because <laughs> I, I had a an old VHS compilation of the best of the Q series. And there's a sketch where he's just the name alone. He plays a character called dog's breath. <laughs> <laughs> and just the name alone used to crack me up. <laughs> but it's just like, if you thought now who would have a sketch where you'd have an infestation, where you would actually see manifest in front of you an infestation of Liberaches in someone's living room. <laughs> yeah. Just beautiful. 
Did uh, were you into Python as well? Uh, not as much. Right. right. I mean, Python always struck me as the kind of well, not always struck me. I suppose in hindsight, it struck me as the kind of like the middle class equivalent of the goons. You know, the, the Python would not have existed without the goons at all. No. And that actually what you've got here was, and I think the war was absolutely crucial to all of them. Mm. You know, it was so formative. You had such, such something that was so different that the, between Pythons and the goon show, there's this massive class divide almost. Mm. Yeah. Because they were all Oxbridge boys. They were. Yeah, and then, you know, good luck if you get into Oxbridge, you know. But at that time, it was certainly something that wasn't, and, and still now, it's not really considered something that working class kids go to. If you're a working class kid, you really, you, you know, you're unusual at Oxbridge. Mm. So, Mark, you're obviously you're touring at the moment. You're in the middle of a tour, so I was very lucky yeah. to, uh, to 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 get you today. But um, what's the? Well, you caught me just after my first cup of coffee, so I mean, uh, oh, okay. I'm vaguely sort of like there. Okay. I'm vaguely <laughs> hearing. So, so yes. So, are you all over the country at the moment? Yes, which is kind of fun and then kind of not fun. The gigs, I love doing the gigs. Because actually what's interesting at the moment is the currency of going out has changed in terms of going out now is something that you do and you monitor. Do you know what I mean? Yes. You, you, so, and also people who bought tickets two years ago, people are suddenly going, we're back on, we're back on, we're back on. So people have got these, all these bloody shows that they've got to see, which are being rescheduled. Uh, and so you get, I mean, I was talking to the guy who books my tours and he said across the board, we're getting about 25% dropout of people right. who, you know, you could be at a sold out show and 25% of the seats won't before because people haven't turned up or they're sick or, you know, heaven forbid a few of them have passed, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. He said, but that's what you're getting. So there's this weird currency where people are kind of like going, oh, I forgot about it or I wasn't told about it or um, I don't feel well or I've been pinged or is it safe or all of those things mm. and so people aren't in the habit of it or I've got bloody eight shows this week and so it's got to give um, but actually once you get there people are really 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 glad yeah. to be together with other human beings the one thing we've missed is this communal contact this thing together this coming togetherness and so in the show I get people to sing I ask quiz questions we get heckling we get shouting People have to join in with songs, so you know all of that kind of stuff, as well as put up with me ranting, railing, shouting, and running around the place and being silly. Yeah, you really like involving people or your audience in 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 what you do because the the People's Manifesto, the show on Radio Four, there was a series, wasn't it? A couple of series. Yeah. Basically, members of the public could come up with policies to change the world. We would then discuss them with the audience see if they'd work and then vote on it. One of my favourite ones was uh, someone just said everything in, our, in supermarkets should be stacked in alphabetical order. And we just examined that idea. I remember just examining that idea and it was nuts. Do you know what I Because the bloke who I spoke to afterwards, I said, that was a very funny idea. And he said, well, it's not funny, it's serious. I can't find anything. It <laughs> brilliant. It makes sense, doesn't it? Um, you had one guy that, an older guy that reckoned that you should legalise and promote the taking of drugs for pensioners. Um, yeah. I mean, he was amazing. He um, basically said, um, I, he, he was in the front row of the recording. He said we should, and I remember he's, he, he put his hand up. He said, I think we should legalise um, the taking of illegal drugs for pensioners. There should be a, a available pensions. I said, why is that? And he goes, he goes, well, uh, I, 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 I've never had any. <laughs> and I'm yeah. okay. He said, and he said, I'm at that age where it's highly unlikely they, they'll do me any harm. They might actually be beneficial. <laughs> I said, all right. He said, also, he said, there's nothing that will put young people off of taking drugs quite like people like me taking them. Absolutely. Very true. <laughs> Very <laughs> true. It's just genius. It's just absolute <laughs> genius. And, you know, when you get stuff like that, you just celebrate it. You do. 
Oh, well, listen, Mark, thank you so much for... I've for, really enjoyed for... this chat, and thank you ever so much. You've made me remember things that I'd forgotten, and you've made me think about... I'm, I'm now going to go and get... I've got an old Goon Show script um, that was actually given to me by the composer, Carl Davis, who does all the Star Wars yeah. things, you know, dresses up and conducts, and he did the music for the World at War and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Um, it, there was a point when he wasn't earning much money in his life and lived opposite. And uh, he gave me a copy of the Goon Show scripts, which was signed uh, by him. So I'm now going to go and get dig that out. Oh, well, let me know which one it is. Um, okay. Does that mean that, that because he was, he was, is he still married? He was married to uh, Ma Boswell Gene from Bolt. Bread, wasn't he? Yeah, Jean Bolt. Yeah. She lived across it. The, they were, she was so funny. She was a hoot. She was just full of fun, actually. They had a little. They had a, a record player in their kitchen. A little, you know, just one of those little crappy ones you get from Woolworths. Mm. And um, we all loved Donovan, and oh, so yeah. we. She just used to play Mellow Yellow all the time, and we used to dance. <laughs> and I just remember dancing around the kitchen, singing Mellow Yellow with Gene Bolt. <laughs> wow! <laughs> On that bombshell, uh, no one. By the way, no one loves Donovan more than Donovan. By the way, <laughs> I mean it's a trait you will we will rarely find in any performer. But <laughs> oh, Mark, thank you again, and uh, and uh, yeah, have a word with Mark Steele, will you? I will do. Take very good care and look after yourself. Man. Thanks again to Mark. Uh, thanks for listening. Please follow on Twitter if you're not already. It's at Goon Show Pod. Uh, also, please follow the Goon Show Preservation Society. They're at the GSPS. Also, consider becoming a member. It's very, very affordable, and you get a lot of great access to a lot of great stuff. Uh, I'll be back next time. Uh, in the meantime, take care. Bye. <laughs>